for those of us who are used to shorter readings, um, there's just no easy way around it. Um, And quite frankly, it's good for us sometimes to stand and to listen to the stories of faith, yes? Um, Well, I actually want to begin before we dive into this text. Um, Some of you have got to know the Amers, uh, Judy and Al. And Judy, just this past week, um, was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis and is in the hospital in North Kansas City, um, intense pain, um, and Al uh, is a part, they're both a part of the Tompkins community group and um, just kind of shared, us, shared a little bit about the pain they're going through. So I told them we would pray for them this morning and pray for Judy. Um, so I just wanted to pause, let you know, um, these are folks who are part of our family, and so let's pray for them together, Okay. Our Father, we come to you because you first came to us. We come to you because you listen to us. We we come to you because you know better than us, and you're more powerful than we are, and you're better than us. And so we come in our limited perspective, just praying for Judy and for Al. We pray in the midst of pain that Judy is going through, the deep sense of fear and questioning, we ask, Lord, that you would, one, bring a great peace to Judy and a great healing to her body. And we ask, Lord, the same for Al, that you would bring a a great peace to him in the midst of all of this, such that a peace that transcends understanding that as the doctors look on, they wonder and question what hope it is that they hold so closely to. God, we know at the end of the day what you do not long for the most is our comfort, but that you would be glorified and the good news of Jesus would be shared as you love and care for your own. So we do ask for healing, but we ask that you would use this moment as well to glorify your good name. Give the doctors wisdom. Um, May the doctors even find themselves amazed at the quick recovery of Judy. But even if that not be the case, may we as a church... May you empower us by your spirit to care for the Amers really well. May they know the feeling of the body of Christ as you have designed the community to care for each other so that the world will look at the church and really see the truth of the gospel. God, we pray for them, we love them, and we hand them over into your sovereign hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, when I was in middle school, um, back in Ohio, I used to mow the lawn for this very sweet elderly widow named Miss Sue. And after I would finish mowing these perfect diagonal lines in her 60-degree angled front yard, um, I would go sit on her back patio on her wicker furniture, and we would have conversations over stereotypical um, rice cakes and diet right, you know? Um, (laughs) And so we would sit back there, and one of the conversations as I was thinking about this passage this morning that popped back into my mind that I'll never forget is when Miss Sue started talking about her faith. She began by saying something like, it's finally happened. I'm officially in. And before I could pull that diet right away from my mouth, um, she said, "I, I know I have true faith because I have the gifts of the Spirit. 
I was, you know, middle school. I'd never talked with anybody who'd had the gifts of the Spirit. I'd heard stories. I'd seen TV evangelists, you know. So I just had some questions. I was like, well, what's that like? And I remember her first response. It kind of shocked me. I almost choked on my rice cake. Um, she said, you know, it's kind of annoying. I said, oh, really? You know, um, continue to tell, tell me more here. She said, well, uh, what happens is, is I'll go to church, you know, and I'll be sitting there and the pastor will be midway through his sermon. And then this guy in the choir taps me on the shoulder and I get slain in the spirit. Um, once again, I'm in middle school. I had no idea what this means. I said, well, tell me, what, what does it mean to be slain in the spirit? Does that mean you fall? Like, does, do you ever hurt yourself? You know, and she, she responds, you know, with her arms crossed. I still remember just rocking on her wicker rocker. She goes, well, yes. Um, yes, it does sometimes hurt. The pastor will start preaching mid-sermon. This guy touches me on the shoulder and I fall to the ground and I start convulsing. And it's so annoying. But at least I know I have true faith. And I, I realized two things right then and there as, as we're sitting talking. First, I really hate rice cakes. And then secondly... Um, Secondly, I didn't want the faith she had, quite frankly, if I can be honest with you. Um, because I had a real hard time in middle school as I read God's word, as I was seeing God show up in the lives of friends and family. I had a hard time coming to grips with the concept of God who, the more you got to know him, the more annoying he got. That um, was really hard for me to tackle and to wrestle with. And I know each of us have probably had those moments in life where we've heard weird ideas about faith. Maybe some we grew up with, some we still hold that need to be sharpened by scripture, um, and some we've heard on the news for various reasons. Actually, you know, I found this, this website. It's a bit of a mockery, but I thought it was still just ridiculous. Is there's pet care for people post-rapture. So if you really love your pets... You'll pay them a one-time fee of $10 to care for your dogs and cats after the rapture. You know, there's all kinds of kooky things out there, and um, we've probably all found that situation in life where we're asking, what is real faith anyway? And what on earth, you know, what's the significance of this thing anyway? Um, Well, for Christianity, throughout its history, faith has been central. It's been critical. I mean, we heard it in our passage read this morning. If we just take a couple snippets, the people of old are commended for what? For their faith. In verse 6, we say, it is impossible to please God without faith. And actually, faith has been so critical to Christianity that more times than not, it's termed what? The Christian faith. Well, even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we can all agree that the issue of faith impacts our lives drastically, doesn't it? Um, I heard one really wise gentleman once say that the isms that we choose guide the framework of our life, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, universalism, atheism. And you may be even sitting here and saying, I don't believe in any of of those isms. I'm the ultimate pragmatist. I have really good problem-solving skills. I'm navigating my life the best way I can. Well, in reality, you've placed your faith in pragmatism, which is, ironically enough, an ideology that pushes against ideologies, but I digress. Now, but here's here's the key component. Faith is essential for living. It's not a matter of whether we have faith, but whether the faith you have saves. Does it have the power 
to make you whole? Does it have the power to bring peace? Does it have the power to deliver? Does it have the power to save, saving faith? And this morning, as we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews, we find a whole chapter dedicated to this life-altering reality called faith. And in a world of isms, we want to know what's the secret to saving faith, right? What's real? Well, as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to see that saving faith is learning to see as God sees so we can live as God lives. Saving faith is learning to see as God sees so we can live as God lives. If you've been with us a few weeks, then you remember that uh, the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. It kind of has this sermonic ring of a really good gospel preacher. Um, And it was written and sent to a crew of Christians who are wrestling in their faith. People a lot like you and I. And they ask, and many times we ask, three critical questions of the Christian faith that are actually answered in Hebrews. And we're going to walk through them this morning. They are, first, what is faith? How does faith work? And who does faith's work? First, what is faith? Secondly, how does faith work? And then thirdly, who does faith's work? If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? If you don't have a copy of the Bible here, uh, we value God's word as revealing God's design for all of life. And so we have some free copies on the flip side of the dividers there. And you can find this passage on page number 652. Page number 652, for easy reference. Now, a good rule of thumb, whenever you step into a very sticky or complex issue, is to define terms, right? Because sometimes we can be talking about things and not even realize what we're talking about. Or when you're in a debate, it's one of the most frustrating things when you're using the same terminology, but you're talking right past each other. So what is a critical component to any sort of research and understanding and growing of knowledge is defining your terms, okay? So what we're going to do first, as people of the book, if you came to a church, we're always, Christians have always been called people of the book, we're going to ask the question and let Scripture answer, what is faith? Well, at the beginning of our passage, we come across one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. I mean, if there's a few verses people have memorized, this is one of them, and it's a great introduction to faith. It's not exhaustive, but it's a good introduction And so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you're newer um, to the Bible, one thing not everyone realizes is that the New Testament was written in the lingua franca, the common language of the Roman Empire, um, which was... Koine Greek. You had the uppity ups who spoke Latin, of course, but Koine Greek was kind of the everyman's language. Um, Almost everybody could speak Koine Greek, regardless of your background if you lived within the Roman Empire. And so what we hold in our hands is actually an English translation of what was originally written in Greek. And the one word that translators have wrestled with is the word translated here in what is called the English Standard Version. Um, It's translated as assurance. If you have an NIV with you this morning, it may be faith is being sure. If you have a King James Version, 
It reads, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So what's going on here? If we've got, we're, we're wrestling with trying to understand what's a good translation. Well, as in the case, and many times in translation, it's, it's kind of hard to find one English word that captures all the meaning of this one Greek word. And so I think it's best if we come with two big ideas, two suitcases that carry the ideas of this one word that's translated assurance here in the ESV. So a little background work to kind of set us up. So first, the author, he won't let us miss that first our faith is substantive. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, is the way the King James Version talks about it. In other words, the Christian faith, it's solid. It's based in reality. Um, It's not abstract ideology. It's not some vague wish. This isn't fairy tales and myths. But this is historical. This is rational. This is real. It's the conviction of things not seen. Or, once again, as the King James Version translates, it's the evidence of things not seen. Just a couple weeks ago, I was at the DMV, um, which is such a fun place to be. Honestly, though, they have upped their game. Like, you can call in and put your name in and just show up. Whoever thought the DMV would do that? I just got to give major props to Missouri DMV. I don't know how it's done in Kansas, but Missouri stepped up. And when I received my plates um, for our vehicle, you know, what's plastered on the top of your plates? Missouri the show me state, right? And I was doing some research on where that came from. And it's actually from the 19th century and this congressperson um, who's highlighting how Missourians have this history of testing the validity of a claim. It's kind of like this skeptic state. Um, You've got to prove it to me. Show me where you've got this idea because I'm not going to just take it at face value. And actually counter to popular belief, this isn't opposed to biblical faith. This is actually a healthy process to enter into as we talk about faith. The New Testament, it actually calls us to trust the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not based on some irrational leap into the dark, but on the basis of sound eyewitness testimonies who report throughout the pages of Scripture what they saw, and they even die these excruciating deaths so that they do not recant what they have seen. I just got very British there, recant. Um, So, for example, one gentleman is the Apostle Peter. I mean, he walked with Jesus both during his life and also during Jesus' resurrection. Those 40 days post his physical resurrection on the earth, he touched, he felt, he held the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And what does he say in his second letter to the church, 2 Peter 1.16? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He saw, he touched, he felt the resurrected Jesus, both when he lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, and rose again bodily, and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Peter's not the only one who talks about this, you know. Um, If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, in verses 3 through verse 8, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep, so this is first century, okay? Um, 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And both Peter and Paul, history proclaims that they died for their faith. They went to the very guillotine for Jesus, for this testimony, not recanting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to God, and now will come again one day as now the new king of the universe. You see, the Christian faith isn't blind faith but rather it's trusting the eyewitness testimonies of those who did see and died for what they saw. Um, The author and and the pastor and actually president of of a particular college, R.C. Sproul, he writes this, those promoting blind faith say, we believe what we believe for no reason whatsoever. It's totally gratuitous. The idea is that there's some kind of virtue in just closing our eyes, taking a deep breath and wishing with all our might that something is true than saying, It's true. That's credulity, not faith. Not biblical faith, not real faith. Faith is substantive. It's it's not just feeling good, but it's thinking well about what God has done in history and how he shaped the world through the gospel. And you see, it's only once we get this point, once we understand the substantive nature of faith, then we can finally understand that faith is a kind of confidence, okay? Okay? It's a kind of confidence, an assurance of things hoped for because of the substantive nature of faith. Um, So the natural question we want to know is, how does this substantive confidence, this faith, work? Well, one thing that I was struck by as I was reading Hebrews 11 is how over and over again the sense of sight pops up, right? Right? We use the sense of sight for navigating most of life to make sure we don't bump into walls, trip and break bones, and hopefully drive, um, although we're looking at many things when we're driving. My wife reminds me of that. And through, through faith, we find that um, we can see what is unseen, right? Noah is given a window into what is unseen. Abraham saw what God was doing even though the city had not come in his lifetime, Moses endures, as we see in the passage, as though seeing him who is invisible. And it's here that we find the first way that that faith works itself out in our everyday living. First, faith enables us to see what we could otherwise not see. Faith enables us to see what we otherwise could not see. A window into the real world, a bigger world, Bigger than either naturalism or mysticism will invite us into. Naturalism says all that we touch and feel is all that the world is. Mysticism says all that we touch and feel is just a mirage, and what is real is our spirits and what is beyond the physical realm. Whereas Christianity says what is spiritual, what is physical is good and is actually bigger than any of those two worldviews can offer. We begin as we seek the truth to learn to see the world as God sees the world. You know, C.S. Lewis has famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in that the sun has written, risen, <laughs> written, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's a way of seeing the world. And when our eyes are open to the gospel, you can finally see the way the world or see the world as it is. Look at verse 3 in Hebrews 11. By faith, we understand. That's, that's a key phrase there. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When we look at the world um, 
through the lens of the gospel, by God's work in the world through Jesus Christ, what we, what we come to expect as we see the world is we come to expect to see order. We come to see and expect the fingerprints of a designer. And when ugly and painful moments arise, when brokenness arise, we're not surprised by that either. We come to see the world as it actually is. And proclaiming God's design, we also see the need of redemption that comes. And now you see it in HD. This is what the gospel provides for us. You know, I remember the first time I watched an, an HD movie at home. Actually, we got a movie that wasn't made for HD, which is actually one of the most terrible things you can do. <laughs> because, and especially if it's a cheap movie, because it's so sharp and it's so clear that you see through all the really cheap movie tricks that they do. And it shows the movie for what it is, really this second-rate film. And it's like watching a home movie. <laughs> It's like somebody's back there with a camera walking around. And it just totally cheapens the whole film experience if it's not made for HD. And really what we have in the gospel is we have this high-definition vision of ourselves where we can see spots in ourselves that we thought were so glamorous and we can see how they really look, how they're broken, how we're hurt, how we're also so destructive in so many ways. But then there are other parts of who we are that we thought were just passe, where the gospel says you're more glamorous than you ever imagined because of what Jesus has done. And this is that HD vision we get because of the gospel that enables us to see the world as it is. I mean, you begin to see how sin actually destroys God's good world, how it's actually bad. It's not just something we can't do, something that stops us from having a good time, but how it's actually destructive to us and to others and to God's good name but how righteousness, as it's described throughout Scripture, and justice are actually for our good and are actually for the good of creation. It transforms the way we see the world as it is. But faith doesn't stop there. It also enables you to see the world as it will be. You get to see the world as it is, but you also get to see the world as it will be. I mean, the one couple who takes up the most real estate in Hebrews 11 is Abraham and Sarah, right? Um, the story of this couple is one where God finds them elderly and yet very courageous, which is so fun. Um, and they're willing to pack up their life, this comfortable life. They had an Earl of the Chaldees. Um, you know, I don't know if they had a really sweet loft or something in that city. But, but they just go. God calls them and they go. Abraham doesn't even know where he's going which is just unbelievable. God says, let's go. And Abraham says, all right, let's get the bags. Let's get the family. Let's get the sheep. Um, let's, let's head out, right? Um, but in verse 10, we read, instead, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. And I love verse 13 through verse 16. This, this passage has always astounded me. <laughs> These all died in faith. See, faith and seeing the world as it is and the way the world will be doesn't mean we don't experience death and hardship and pain at times. It means it doesn't have the final word, but these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, 
That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A city. And through faith, they could see what others couldn't. Yeah, they saw the way the world was, but they could see what the world will be when God fulfills all his promises to mankind. And and they oriented their life in such a way to live into the world that is, but more importantly, to the world that will be in God's promises, even if it's not fulfilled in their lifetime. When you see the world as God sees, you no longer can just focus on pain and suffering and injustice, but you actually are given hope for the world that will be, the world that is coming. But on the opposite end as well, We cannot sit as Christians and see the way the world is with its pain and suffering and justice and sit idly by. But he always is calling us in to be active agents in the world that is until the world will be what it will be. You know, the gospel, I heard this great analogy. The gospel is like one of the most absolutely beautiful pieces of art you've ever seen and someone gives it to you as a gift. So you bring it home. You're so excited to hang it on your walls. And as you go from room to room, you realize that no room really does justice to this work of art. And so after just such frustration, what you decide to do is tear down the house and rebuild the house all around this one piece of art. Every single aspect of this new house points to this work of art. It finds its orientation from this new centerpiece. It defines the home as it was meant to be made. And this is what the gospel does through faith, is it provides a whole new epistemology, a new way of thinking that then enables a new way of seeing, a new way of seeing the world. And so we ask ourselves this morning, do we have the eyes of faith? Do we have the eyes of faith? Or as the old Christian hymn and Christmas hymn sings, do you see what I see, right? Well, the second way faith works itself out is that faith empowers us to live like we otherwise could not live. Um, Without the gospel, we can't see past our own selfish ambition and we trip over our greed, our lust, going down these dead-end paths. But saving faith is learning to see as God sees so we can live as God lives. And it's here that like Abraham and Sarah, um, God may be calling you to step out of your comfort zone. You know, I'm reading Spiritual Parenting with Allie right now. Whenever, when you have a child, you start freaking out. Like, oh, there's so many things I'm probably going to do wrong, but let's try to limit them as much as possible. So we're reading Spiritual Parenting, which we give to all of our parents here at the downtown campus as they get engaged. And one of these things are challenging us to be stepping out of our comfort zone. Your comfort zone is the area where you know that if you do everything right, it'll work out. Um, Your comfort zone can be both simultaneously very difficult and comfortable. doesn't mean your comfort zone doesn't have to be easy. It just means you can accomplish it on your own. But when you step out of your comfort zone, what you're saying then is, if God doesn't come through, I'm in trouble. If God doesn't come through, things are about to go downward spiral very quickly. I usually walk um, my dog Lola in the morning, you know, before all the busyness of the day starts to to spark up. And we walk this normal path around here downtown. And there's this one spot. We come to it almost every day. I mean, she's walked past it now thousands of times because I walk her multiple times a day sometimes. 
And, but now there's this spot where there's construction. And so they dug up this tree and they stuck it on the tarp. And as I'm walking Lola, she just freezes. Her hair sticks up on the back of her neck and she won't move. And I'm thinking, Lola, you know, we've walked this way thousands of times, but she won't budge. I want her to see what I see, you know, that it's just a tree. It's not going to do anything. There's no way it's going to attack her. And she's with me, right? I'm her master. I've got it taken care of. Um, <laughs> and, but slowly, what I have to do is walk with her. She has to trust me as her master. We've walked thousands of times. We've built this trust. So I say, come on. I walk her around, slightly tugging just a little bit. It's very uncomfortable, I know. The gentle leader is squeezing on her nuzzle there. But I'm pulling And we're walking, and we finally get past that part of the trail, and she's all good again. Um, But sometimes God calls us to take some scary steps. Sometimes where we want to stop, and the hair on the back of our neck sticks up. And we're absolutely terrified of what we see in front of us. We can't easily interpret it. And I want to ask us this morning, is God calling you to take some next steps, some scary steps, to step out? Um, What's that next step that you could be taking in your life? And parents, for those of you in here, how are you helping your children step out of their comfort zone? Either by modeling it or providing opportunities for them to cultivate their faith. Children, you're not excluded from this. You're part, you have a part to play as well. Actually, what's so beautiful is that Jesus calls us to have childlike faith in many regards. God is calling you to step out of your comfort zone as well. Jesus calls us to be trusting him, to follow him, to step out when we feel like the only person who can really catch us is Christ. And just because in faith we're learning to see as God sees doesn't mean we're going to see it all, right? There are plenty of times when we step out and it's darkness. There are plenty of times when we're confused even about what that next step looks like. And Paul says this in his letter to the church in Corinth. We walk by faith, not by sight. And a majority of our following of Jesus. There's plenty we don't see. And when we don't see, we lean into the confidence that we have in this substantive gospel. The eyewitness accounts that Jesus really has defeated death and sin. And if God can do that, and he's fulfilled his promise in Jesus, how much more will he do so to those who are his children? We hold on to this truth. We proclaim it every now and then as a congregation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are brothers and sisters in his blood. We have died together. We will rise together and we will live together. Where are you terrified today? Where are you absolutely paralyzed? Is there a sin that you're battling that you need to confess and actually invite others to come alongside and help you? for accountability, for encouragement, for prayer? I mean, is there a friend who needs to hear the gospel where you're going to feel like a fool as soon as you share it? Is there something you need to stop doing in order to serve someone? What do you need to give up? What is that next scary step that God's calling you to? You know, R.C. Sproul, once again, he says, at its root, this is what faith is. It's not just believing in God. I mean, in James, we see the demons believe that there is a God and they still shudder. It's about living by every word that proceeds from his mouth. 
It's about following him into places where we've never been, into situations that we've never experienced, into countries that we've never seen because we know who he is. Maybe for some of you, it's a what about Bob moment, you know? Almost every pastor I know loves what about Bob for various reasons. But maybe you're being asked to to take some baby steps, baby steps to start praying with your spouse. That seems scary. It really does. Baby steps to have coffee with your neighbor or a coworker. Baby steps. I mean, what's that next step that God's calling you to take in your life? But sometimes it's not just stepping out. Sometimes it's waiting it out. And some of you might be in a completely different situation um, where we're waiting on God. Uh, It's not taking another step, but it's waiting that God's calling you to. And sometimes this is harder because we don't understand why we're not moving. We start asking the question, is this sin? Am I really this silly and ridiculous that I don't know where to go? Or is really God have me here purposefully? Is he calling me to wait? You know, Noah built the ark and he waited. Abraham and Sarah, they went to the promised land and they waited. Moses left the comfort of this Egyptian palace and went into the desert first off and waited. And there were countless others that he says he doesn't have time to mention who experienced all sorts of pain and suffering as they waited for the promises of God to be fulfilled. It's these that, the, that God's word highlights. The world is not worthy. I'm not sure how many of you know my mom's story or my family's story. Some of you know more, more parts than others, but my mom is in, is in my own personal hall of faith. Um, we all have those people that have come into our lives um, and challenged us in our walk of faith and have lived a great example of faithfulness by the power of the gospel. And recently, actually, my mom was asked to share her testimony at the women's ministry at her church um, at this gathering. And she wanted to share it with us kids first, which was really sweet. She wrote it out. It was pretty long. It took like 20, 30 minutes. Um, But while she read it, there were plenty of times where we wept together. We kind of grieved those old pains those old suffering moments, those old hurts that we'd walked through together. But we could also look back with the eyes of faith and see what God was even doing in those painful moments, which was such a great moment to share with my siblings and my mom, my two older sisters. And actually, it's a lot easier for us in faith to look back than it is to look forward with faith. Sometimes we can look back and interpret and see how God was working. Well, I want to share just a short snippet from her testimony Um, because it lines up really beautifully with our Hebrews text. Um, When she she had to go back to work, she hadn't worked a day in her life since college. Um, She had to go back to work after my dad left our family, my two older sisters and I and my mom. And it's titled, this chapter, (laughs) God Provided a Job. And she first quotes from Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. And this is what it says. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this is what she begins to write. It was a little frightening since I had not worked outside of the home since college. But as always, my God stepped in. As I thought about a resume with not a lot to put on it and started scouring the paper for any type of position, knowing that the money I had would not last long, a Christian neighbor who I'd walked with 
asked me if I needed a job and that her daughter was the head of the human resources at Vori's law firm. And she would talk to her about an application for me. So I filled it out. She called me in and told me she would find something as she knew I could read since I had homeschooled my children for a while. Um, And I started in the basement, the basement file room with data entry. And I watched how after a few months, God moved me to a position assisting in the trademark law area of the main lobby of the law firm. They sent me to classes for Word, Excel, and a data system for trademarks all over the world. Even though mentally it challenged me and I'd come home exhausted, I enjoyed it. And soon the overwhelming feeling that I had at the beginning of this process started to ebb. I was so grateful for a job and along with my daughter, Emmy, and who was, who was at, still at home but working and helping financially, and Yvonne, who was married, but helping me balance my bills and fill in with extra funds if we needed it, we were able to make ends meet. Times got easier financially as the months progressed, and I'll always be grateful to have been working during 9-11 where God gave me many opportunities to share him during that time. There was never time to say, what about me? What do I need? My only thoughts were that I was accountable to God for how I reacted toward the circumstances. And I knew my children were always watching these reactions and my response toward the Lord and his provision. I was under the umbrella of God's protection and was afraid to step out of it. Psalm 91.1, she writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And that is where I now felt safe and secure. I mean, I was weeping, you know, as my mom's reading this. They're like, Mom, I love you, you know. Um, And the only reason, I actually told her, you know, we have to codify this to give to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren because I do feel like this is a Hebrews 11 moment. It's one of those times where you see God working in my mom to sustain and care for our family and her continue to keep her eyes focused on Jesus. That's the only reason my mom could endure this long wait. Um, it's because of the gospel. In those darkest moments of her life, through faith, she'd, she'd learned and was learning to see as God sees and live as God lives. So I ask you this morning, what are you waiting? What is God asking you to wait on? Maybe you're tired of being tired. Maybe you're frustrated with being frustrated. Hold on to the promise of God's word that one day in Christ, all his promises will be fulfilled. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But God hasn't forgotten you. Just know that wherever you're at, God hasn't forgotten you. We see time and time again through years, through whole lifetimes, It takes some time for us to see that. But God hasn't forgotten. As sure as God died and rose again when he became incarnate, so sure he will do one day what he has promised for his own. And now, even as I was listening to this, um, if you're anything like me, um, you may be thinking, this still feels too big. It still feels too large for me to carry, to live into. And that's because it should. That's normal. That's actually appropriate. You see, at the end of the day, it's not just remembering what faith is or how faith works, but it's remembering who does faith's work. Who does faith's work? God does. You see, the Bible never just gives us information and expects us to change. That's the language of legalism, quite frankly. It doesn't just highlight the head, but it pierces the heart. 
And when it tells you to do something, actually it tells you and shows you you can't do it alone. And then it points us to the cross of Christ and reminds us it has been finished on the cross and Christ himself is working in you to accomplish it for God's good purposes. I mean, if you just look at some of the people that are listed here, right? As we read through this hall of faith, I mean, look at some of these folks. You've got Samson, who was sleeping with all kinds of folks. You've got Abraham, who had multiple wives. He was a polygamist. Um, You had Gideon, who did all kinds of things. Rahab was a prostitute. Moses was a murderer. I mean, these aren't perfect people in history by any means. I mean, how many of these folks? Goodness gracious. We, we, We may not be excited to invite over for dinner, although Jesus would tell us to be and encourage us because this is the way of grace. And yet they're commended for what? Their faith their faith. Even though we're walking um, through Hebrews 11 this morning, just to reiterate, this is one large sermon, all of Hebrews, and we can't lose sight of the whole. And at the end of the sermon in Hebrews 13, the preacher, the sermonator, the, the writer, he says in 1320, beginning now, may the God of peace, down to 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Yes, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Faith is the confidence of God's work for us and in us through Jesus. It's seeing him do the work of transformation. And quite frankly, the language of faith is very synonymous with the language of surrender. Surrender. You know, Pastor Tim Keller, when talking about faith, writes this. It's easier to assume that being saved by faith means that God will now love us because of the depth of our repentance and faith. But that is to once again subtly make ourselves our own savior rather than Jesus. It's not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. And that's why Jesus over and over again, what is he looking for? A mustard seed of faith. That's surrender, not a watermelon. That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's the language of surrender, the confidence that it's already been done for you and is being done in you by Jesus. You see, faith, it's learning to see as God sees, and God sees Jesus everywhere. And it's learning to live as God lives, and God has shown us what life in him looks like. It's taking up a cross and dying. It is losing our life that we might find it. For Jesus is not only the object of our faith, but he's the founder and perfecter of our faith, as we see in Hebrews 12. He's the redeemer of the world that is and the king of the world that will be. He's not only made a way for redemption, but energizes us to walk in it. Jesus is the way to see, the truth to understand, and the life we live. And one person that I've always really enjoyed um, studying and reading about, not because I'm Irish, Um, is St. Patrick. Uh, He's a young man who's actually British, um, so that's another reason why. He's a young man who's British probably around the 5th century. He was kidnapped from England um, and made a slave in Ireland for about six years, roughly. And then he escaped from slavery, went back to England, and then felt God calling him to be a missionary to the Irish, which I am eternally grateful, once again, Um, but how is this rational? Like any person in their right mind would ask, this dude was a slave for years, brutalized, kidnapped, and then he goes back to the same folks. 
What is he going to expect that's different? How is this possible? And it's because in faith, he was learning to see as God sees so that he might live as God lives. He was enraptured with the gospel. And he stepped out, and after stepping out, he waited it out. His famous prayer, I think, captures this surrender so well. And something so interesting about prayer, too, just thinking about posture. I was thinking about this this week. The posture of prayer is that we remind that what we see is not all that there is. Because many times, what do we do when we pray? We close our eyes. We remind that there is many things in the world that are unseen. The invisible God who became visible in Jesus is the one we communicate to and have perfect access to boldly before his throne of grace through Christ. I digress. When, when, let's look at this prayer that captures the surrender. He prays, I rise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock, I rise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. Christ shield me today against wounding Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of the creation. May that be our prayer today. Yes? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we are thankful. Thankful for your word that you have enabled us by your gospel work to surrender to your finished work. Lord, may we learn to see as you see. May we learn to live as you live by your grace through Christ alone. May we rest in the good news of the gospel so that everywhere we look, we can't help but see Jesus and him working. May we rest so deeply in the good news of the gospel that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live as we otherwise could not live by living out the life of Christ even here. We ask that for each and every one of us and for a church corporately, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.